Well, Lord Church, if you would open to First Timothy chapter 2. Last week we looked at verse 8. We will read that again, but continue on through verse 15. 1 Timothy 2, starting in verse 8, this is the Word of God. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was, was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Father, and again, we ask for two things, Lord. We ask first for accuracy that we would rightly understand this passage before us, Lord, that You have delivered to us and to every church. Help us to understand these things. And then, Lord, we pray for our own hearts that we not just merely understand, but fully embrace the goodness of biblical womanhood. Lord, that for the men, for the children, uh, that they would affirm and encourage. And thank You for women who embrace and embody these things. And Lord, for the ladies, that their hearts be receptive to what You would say to them through this text. Lord, help us with these things for Your name's sake. For the sake of your church, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to start uh, the same way I did last week. Uh, there's a, uh, a quote I gave by Carl Truman, a little article he wrote recently, uh, talking about how in every generation the church has to fight certain battles. And uh, he laid out a few of these. He said in the 4th century, the church had to fight to maintain the doctrine of God or the Trinity. In the 5th century, Christology. In the 16th century, so the Reformation, the, the sacraments and salvation. In the 17th and 18th century, these are my added notes here, uh, the doctrine of the church with the Puritans. The 19th and 20th century, liberalism and fighting for the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. And then Truman says this, in our age, what's most under attack is anthropology. What does it mean to be human? Now, quote, we find ourselves not so much in a battle for the Bible, but in a battle for the body. The status of the body in human persons is the issue that lies often unseen beneath many of the other more prominent debates of our age. The most controversial question of recent years, what is a woman? Our culture denies the authority of the body and therefore cannot answer this question. And so the Bible, thankfully, uh, does not just give us biological answers or sociological answers. It gives us what we might call a teleological answer. Uh, it, it speaks to the divine purpose and the design for womanhood 
And it's interesting that Paul, uh, speaking to young Timothy, this pastor uh, who's ministering in the church in Ephesus, right out of the gate, right from the beginning, begins to talk about issues of gender related to the church and important in the church. And that's why I said last week, uh, because we've begun to lose, and, and over the last 50 years especially, have lost the distinctions between men and women in the home, and because we've lost them in many churches, we're now losing them in the culture. Because that's the order. You lose it in the church, you lose it in the home, you lose it in the church and home, you begin to lose it in the culture. And so we looked at last week, men and their calling in verse 8 to lead and the effects that has not only in the church and in the home, but in culture. And now we turn this week to verse 9 and 15 to the ladies, to the women's calling and the effects that that has not only in the home and in the church, but also into the culture. Uh, I'm, I won't get into this again right now because we, we dealt with this last week, but it is important for understanding these verses. Who Paul's speaking to, we established last week, he's speaking to not only the Christians in Ephesus, but he's speaking to all Christians in all churches throughout all of history. And I think that's really important to remember. I'll add this, uh, and, I, and we said this again last week, that Paul is addressing common temptations for each gender. So you go, this is a lot of random stuff about men and women. How does he picking what he's mentioning here? I think he's mentioning the things that are common temptations for men and women in the church context, uh, especially the gathered church. And so this remains relevant for us. Uh, so here's what I did, approaching and been kind of meditating on this for the last few weeks. I stepped back and I said, uh, if, if we were to just walk the streets of any city in America, and, 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 and even go into many churches and ask, what are the most hot-button issues, the most controversial issues that you could talk about regarding men and regarding women in the church? What would be mentioned? And then you look back at the text and you're like, whoa, it's pretty much all the issues that would be mentioned. The things we looked at last week regarding male failure and uh, in, in, in their leadership, the things that we'll look at this week that are mentioned in this passage, which get into things like childbearing and modesty, uh, which get into women having authority and being preachers in the church. And then, and then we ask this question. We, we, we ask, what has been the fruit of feminism and the ideological push of feminism over the last 50 years? What effect has that had? And you think of how many women have been kept from having babies. Uh, even worse, killing them through abortion. How many women are offended to even have a discussion on the topic of modesty because of how that whole discussion has been framed? You think about how many women pride themselves in taking authority away from men in these spaces, and that's celebrated as a good thing. I mean, do you see the relevance in our day for continuing to study these things? So let me just say this from the beginning. Some of y'all already need to hear this. Uh, you will be tempted to be embarrassed for my sake today. Don't be. Okay, I've been preaching on gender distinctions in the church for 20 years, uh, even before I was a pastor talking about these things. I am, I am completely comfortable talking about these things. Don't be embarrassed for my sake or your sake. Okay, I, I want to I remind us that if, if what uh, I say today uh, is biblical, it is God's word, not mine. 
So I, I'm, I'm not uncomfortable speaking on these things because I don't think I'm speaking on them. I don't feel like it's, I'm giving my uh, opinion on these matters. If I'm interpreting these verses rightly, and you must judge that, we're looking at God's words for us. And here's what, here's what can happen, though, when we study these type things. If someone uh, is skeptical of these things, you can immediately begin to look at the text. Okay, is this true to the text? And I think in this case, it's very easy to, to realize this is not very easy to argue with. This text is quite clear. And so you can't really argue and dismiss the text. So the temptation is dismiss the preacher who's preaching the text. So there's two ways to conveniently try to work around what's said here. And I think we need to be careful about that. Uh, women, many times preachers will be accused of being patriarchal. They'll even say things like, you're, you're a man, of course, you can't speak about women like that. You can't tell women what women should do. And to that accusation, I would actually say, I, I kind of agree with you uh, to an extent. Um, because we know that Paul tells uh, in, in Titus, it says that older women should teach younger women how to love their husbands, many uh, children, many things related to womanhood is not ideal for a, a male pastor to speak into. That's why Paul gives that instruction to older women. But at the same time, a pastor does have a responsibility to speak on these issues. That's the whole context of our passage. Paul, who's an older male is speaking to a younger male, Timothy, and telling him to teach these things to the churches. And so there's no avoiding some responsibility a pastor has to speak into to these things. Now, one of the things that a lot of the liberal interpreters will do that really leads a lot of people astray, they'll come to a passage like this and they'll say, you know, well, that's Paul's opinion. Jesus wouldn't ever have said that. And they'll try to bifurcate the authors and really kind of put them against each other. And the problem with that is Paul is speaking under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this isn't Paul's opinion. It says in 2 Peter, for example, of all the biblical authors, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so we can't look at a biblical author and say, well, oh, that's just Paul's opinion. No, um, this is inspiration of the Spirit. And again, this is why we should not be ashamed of what we have before us. And let me put one more passage before us that is really relevant. Jesus warned us in Mark 8, 38, with these words, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Of Him will the Son of Man be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with His holy angels. So there's no reason to ever be ashamed, and we must not ever be ashamed of the words of Christ. But what we need to do is understand what lies have been told to us that would make us feel ashamed feel tempted to be ashamed of the very words of God. What lies from the culture have been told to us? Let's recognize those lies. And then what is the truth of Scripture actually say? And then it's my duty and responsibility to then embrace what God has said in Scripture. So here, here's my title today and how we'll approach this. Um, Biblical femininity and dragon ideologies. Now let me explain what I mean by both those words, biblical femininity 
uh, we just mean something like the Bible's liberating path of joy for Christian women. It's biblical femininity. Dragon ideologies are those lies the culture tells women that don't originate in the minds of people, but originate in the mind of Satan himself in that ancient dragon, that original serpent who spoke lies to the first woman, he's still speaking lies to women today. And we cannot forget that. And so three things I want us to see here will expose the lie and then tell the truth on each one of these three. Let's start with this one. The lie and the truth about women's modesty. So look at verse 9. Women should adorn themselves in, it says, respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold pearls, uh, gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So again, our, our culture has been very successful at their little PR campaign to frame the whole discussion around modesty as an entirely negative thing. And so, I mean, think, think if somebody goes onto a talk show and, and they're being interviewed and they just bring up the importance of modesty. I mean, they will get slayed, right? Immediate pushback and rejection of any suggestion that women or men should dress modestly. And, uh, and, and so think of how this, this even plays out in the church. When the issue of modesty gets brought up, even in church settings, even women to women, What's immediately said, oftentimes? That's legalism. The the, the charge of legalism gets brought into discussion almost immediately. The problem is, Paul is talking to Timothy about the issue of modesty, and he's certainly not trying to spread legalism in the churches. That's not why he's bringing this up. Uh, Legalism is not the problem with talking about modesty. Uh, Another way this discussion gets framed is is many times you'll hear things like dress modest so you don't cause a brother to stumble. Now that may be true and that may help out, you know, a brother not to stumble, but that's simply not what Paul's telling Timothy this is for. He's not saying don't dress a modest ladies because you're going to cause one of your weaker brothers or a guy who can't control his eyes or his mind, you know, just guard. That's not, that's not the point. That's not what he's saying. Uh, additionally, Paul's not talking about fashion trends. Here, here's this, many times these, uh, the issue of modesty is bypassed or sidestepped with this type of response. Well, I'm just, I'm just, this is just what's fashionable, right? This is just what's trendy. All the, every woman wears pants like this. Every woman wears a shirt that, that's like, right? It, the, the discussion of trends and, and and, and what's trendy often just side pushes any discussion of modesty because of trends. And so uh, if modesty is not about fashion, if it's not about legalism, if it's not about causing even men to stumble, what's it about? Well, it's about godliness. Verse 10, look at it. There are certain ways that a woman is, who professes godliness should adorn herself in certain ways she shouldn't. So it doesn't matter if she's in a church full of men. It doesn't matter if uh, she's at an all-ladies event. It doesn't matter if she's going to the store and doesn't think she'll see anybody she knows. This is an issue between her and her God. 
This is, a, this is something that she does for the Lord. If she wants to do what is pleasing in God's sight, modesty matters. Now, why do I use God's sight? Well, 1 Peter 3.3 says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. So that's, that's a different letter to a different group of women. This isn't just about the women in Ephesus who are dressing wrong. That's Peter speaking to the women in Asia and Cappadocia and Bithynia and Galatia. This isn't just a cultural issue in Corinth or in Ephesus. This is the same teaching being spread and taught in all the churches. And, and sometimes people get caught up with the braided hair and gold jewelry, uh, which I think is about not flaunting wealth or luxury. But the braided hair, uh, in that day, they would, they would have a certain type of braids they would do and often weave pearls. It was a, a very costly way to kind of flaunt wealth. An, another way to flaunt wealth in that day was to weave pearls through, through the braided hair. The principle still applies, even if these hairstyles change. Uh, and the principle is women shouldn't put all their time and effort into external beauty and flaunting wealth. I think that's really what he's getting at. There, here, there's a sense of which you, what you wear is advertising what type of woman you are. You are clothing your body, but your body is what? It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. It houses your soul. You're clothing who your inner person is. Can you completely disconnect the clothing from who the inner person is? Well, yes, they're, they're different. They're not the same. But shouldn't there be continuity between them? Shouldn't, if you are have a beautiful soul that loves the Lord, shouldn't your clothing match that? Shouldn't there be a, a, a continuity between the inner beauty of that woman whose life is full of good works and loves the Lord and she's full of purity, and then her clothing match that? that that's what Paul's saying. Let these things be consistent. You know, I, I hope every uh, Christian woman does have a beautiful heart, and they do have a beautiful heart, and that is the most important and ultimate thing. It says in 1 Peter 3, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That is ultimate. But that's the whole reason why clothing gets brought up. Not to say clothing doesn't matter, but to say clothing does matter because your body and your soul are beautiful, and your life is full of good works. Uh, play the part. Dress the part. Don't look like you shop all day or that everything that matters to you is external. Don't look like everything that matters to you is what matters to the world. Show that set-apartness even through how you dress. You know, a lot of younger women, maybe not in this church, but the church abroad will ask questions like, why do I keep attracting the wrong type of guys? And, you know, in some cases, it's probably because they're going to the wrong places. It's hard to find a good godly guy in a bar or in a club or something like that. Um, but, but many times, it could also be, what are you advertising? Are you advertising yourself as a, as a godly woman who's looking for a godly man? I mean, what are you portraying externally needs to get brought into the discussion 
Rosera Butterfield said, a godly woman is a modest woman. Martha Peace defines modesty and immodesty like this. Immodesty is an attitude of the heart that expresses itself with inappropriate words, actions, and clothes that are flirtatious, manipulative, revealing, and sensual. That's immodesty. Listen to how John Piper defined immodesty in a pretty shocking way. He, he, he said it like this. Immodesty is basically saying, don't look at God. Don't look at God. Look at me. And then listen to modesty. Modesty is an inner attitude of the heart motivated by a love for God that seeks His glory through purity and humility. It often reveals itself in words and actions and clothes that adorn properly a, a life devoted to good works. So that's the lies and truth about modesty. Here's the second. A lie and truth about women's discipleship, or we could say women's teaching. Look at verse 11. Let a woman, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. I'll pause. Let's hit this at a few different levels. So first, the first thing I think we should notice about this is how shockingly not, uh, not shocking it is, <laughs> okay? How should men listen to teaching? Let me ask it like this. How should, what is a man's posture to be, or, or a child, or anyone in the, in the corporate setting when the Word of God is being preached? Quiet, not disruptive, right? Uh, you know, submissive to the word, right? This is, so at one sense, this is how everybody should receive the word. Amen? There, there, there's nothing different said there. But we can't stop there because he does single out women here. And he, and he is saying something unique to the women. And I think what he says to the women is actually very, very scandalous for first century believers. But for the opposite reasons it is today. Uh, they would have heard these statements as overly liberal, not overly conservative. Um, in our day, many read these verses and they say, how dare he be so chauvinistic? This is his oppressive patriarchy. Prime example right here. That's our day. And that day, they would have heard in this Jewish context, they would have said, how could Paul be so progressive? This is so liberal. Um, and here, here's what I mean by that. So take this, the story of Mary and Martha who were with Jesus in the house. And Mary's seated at the feet of Jesus. She's learning. She's being discipled. She's sitting under his teaching. And Martha is in the other room upset. Now, many times we say, well, she's upset because Mary's not in there helping her cook and clean and do all this stuff. Well, maybe so. But I think she was also upset because the gender roles are being messed up. Uh, Mary's supposed to be in the kitchen. She's not supposed to be at the feet of Jesus. That's, why, that's part of why Martha was upset. And Jesus doesn't rebuke Mary. He says, this is good. Now Paul is saying this is good. This is flying in the face of first century Judaism, where it wasn't appropriate for women to sit with the men equally and receive the word of God equally with the men. So what Paul is saying is very progressive to a first century audience. Now listen, I understand many people will go, well, we're not in the first century. 
So I'm sure that was, you know, progressive for them, but we're modern people, and this is oppressive to us. In our modern day, this is not liberating. This is oppressive. And I think four primary views of this text have been birthed out of that type of thinking. Um, I'm going to land on the last one, the traditional view of this, but there's three others that precede it that I'll mention that I think come out of a uh, a feminist interpretation. So the first two deny Pauline authorship altogether. Okay, um, they'll discard the passage by saying this isn't even from Paul. This was inserted later. You know, this isn't even Pauline, and they'll they'll bypass this by uh, taking uh, all authorship away from Paul, or they'll put Paul against Jesus, like I said earlier, and they'll say Jesus didn't say this, so therefore it doesn't matter. Uh, this is just Paul's opinion. So that's not a Christian interpretation. That's outside of Christianity. Out, these are non-Christian scholars, so we won't even deal with that interpretation right now. The, the, those are the first two views. The, the third view of this passage is really that it's, it's purely cultural. Um, this is for loud, kind of crazy women with a pagan background in Ephesus in that day. And so these things are for those particular ladies that were in Ephesus and uh, I, will, I will add, and we won't get into this uh, view a lot, but uh, I do think this is a new view. You won't find it historically uh, until uh, 50, 70 years ago with the feminist movement and egalitarian type teachings that came in. You start seeing this type of argument. And so, you know, here, here's what's interesting actually about uh, feminism. A lot of people are beginning to reject it, men and women. And question it. I don't know if y'all have noticed this. We're talking outside the church. That uh, many who have seen for the last 50 years this banner waved about, oh, we're here to liberate everyone from the oppression of Christianity. We're here to liberate everyone from the chauvinistic, patriarchic uh, Apostle Paul, you know, and, the, and, and all these rights for women. And this is good. This is what liberation looks like. That's been the anthem for 50 years, and now people's eyes are coming open because they're seeing transgenderism just walked through the same door, the same arguments, and it just got rid of all women's rights, and everything they just fought for for the last 50 years just walked through the same door as feminism, and they're going, whoa, wait a second here, maybe we made a wrong turn, and they're not just going back to third wave uh, second wave or even first wave feminism, they're going all the way back to the beginning and saying, you know what? Maybe the traditional gender roles that people have believed in Christianity's taught since the beginning, maybe, maybe that's where we went wrong. Uh, there, there's a lot of that happening in our culture right now. And I said this a few weeks ago when we were in the marriage series. I'll say it again. Christianity is the only legitimate women's liberation movement to ever exist. It is. The Bible's teaching on womanhood is liberating. It liberates from the lies of secular feminist ideologies that suppress women, that steal joy from women. It liberates from the lies of false religions that always oppress women. Guys, I, I, look, I know the arguments. People, people say things like, well, I know, I, know, I know Christians who use these same verses to oppress women. 
but they're not obeying the verses. They're using them for their selfish ends. This is not an oppressive teaching to women. God designed women in His own image. He loves women more than women love women, more than men love women, more than anyone. And what He has said for them and to them is their blessing, is their freedom, is their joy, is their glory. And, and again, people throw out things like, well, Deborah, the, uh, the prophetess from the Old Testament, always enters these type discussions. And someone will say, well, she wasn't rebuked for her leadership in Israel. And that's true. She wasn't rebuked. But who was rebuked? The men were rebuked for not leading as God had called them to lead. So yes, Deborah was not rebuked, but the men who failed to lead were rebuked. This is not about women's intelligence. This is not about women's competency at all. You know, you think about a, a missions context. You hear this on the mission field many times that in, in many third world countries, you'll have, um, you'll have young men who have to help their families provide from an early age so they have to drop out of school. But the women will keep going to school and they'll get more educated than the men. And so then a church is formed and you have all these you know, women who are more educated than the men. And they think, well, the women are educated. They should be the pastors and teachers. The men aren't as educated. So do we change the scripture to fit that situation? Right? No, we, we don't. Uh, that, that's not how we read the Bible. We don't twist the scripture to fit what it says. So here, here's the fourth uh, interpretation of this. And I don't know what to call this. It's just a, a, a traditional view. The, if you look at the grammatical historical context, I think you just read it as, it as it is. So verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to, and there's two different things said here, teach or exercise authority over a man. Now there's big discussions about are those two things one? Are they two? I, I think they are two. I think in the Greek, they're two separate ideas, although there may be some overlap. I do think they're separate. And then it says, rather she should remain quiet. Listen how it reads. Verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So it's interesting. Paul is rooting his whole argument, his whole point about women's role in the church in something that's absolutely not dependent on culture, ever. The creation, the, the order of creation, the order of the fall. I, don't, I, I do not permit a woman to teach her exercise authority over man, rather she should remain quiet for or because Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. So, you know, many of us, we know this is not the, the only time or the first time that, that this type of argument is brought up or this type of way of reasoning is brought up. We studied this in the marriage series in uh, Matthew 19, for example, when Jesus is teaching about marriage and divorce. He says the reason why you shouldn't get a divorce is from the beginning it was not so. And he goes back to Genesis. So his whole teaching on marriage, he roots in Genesis. We see Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33 says, In all the churches of the saints, 
the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, or, uh, but should be in submission, as the law also says. So he roots that in the law. And he says, if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So you have women's roles rooted in the law, rooted uh, from Jesus and Paul in creation, things that are not affected by culture. And look at verse 14. This one I've been trying to figure out uh, for some time how, why he's saying what he's saying in verse 14. And I do think I'm on the right track at this point. But look at verse 14. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, why would he say that? What relevance does this have to the whole discussion? Well, he's talking about women not uh, speaking in the corporate gathering or preaching in the corporate gathering or having authority. And then he mentions Eve in the garden and saying this has something to do with it. This is somehow relevant. And what's happening with Eve in the garden? Satan is speaking to her. And what is she doing to Satan? She's speaking to Satan. I read one woman who said this, women rarely speak in the Bible. When you, when you really think about all the words that are in the Bible and how few of them are from women, it's a tiny amount. Which uh, this woman, who I'm quoting, concluded, quote, our silence must be our power. Our silence is our beauty. When women step back and, and put themselves in a position of humility and respect, we become true gifts of God. I think that's what Paul is, is getting at here in the, in the gathered church. Uh, when was the first time a woman's words recorded in Scripture? What's the first time we see a woman speak in Scripture? It's Eve. And who's she speaking to? Adam? She's having a conversation with her husband? She's talking to God in prayer? She's speaking to the devil. The very first words from a woman in Scripture are words of a woman Speaking to the devil and the devil to her. The first words of the devil are speaking to who? The woman. And Paul's drawing on this and saying this holds some relevance to the gathering. Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived and became a transgressor. It seems to be saying the first words in the Bible from the woman were to the devil. Now who should have spoke to the devil? Who should have been talking to the devil when his lies began to come? Whose responsibility was that to rebuke the serpent with the word of God in that sacred garden sanctuary? I believe the garden is a garden temple. It's a sanctuary. Who should have spoken and rebuked the devil? Whose responsibility was that as the federal head of humanity? It was Adam's. It was the man's job to push back the lies of Satan. And instead, Eve was, was speaking and became vulnerable and fell into temptation. And so I think Paul's point is to say, women will be blessed when they allow the men to step forward and push back the serpent's lies with the Word of God in the corporate gathering. Okay, This is our context for this. In the corporate gathering. Now, if we press on to lies and the truth. This last section... Uh, with what we might call 
women's sanctification, or we could call it perseverance. Look at verse 15. Look at the phrase, she will be saved through childbearing. How many times have you read over that and just said, I have no idea (laughs) what to do with that verse. She will be saved through childbearing, which I don't think means that women will be saved by giving birth. That would be heretical (laughs) because women are to be saved by faith and through faith in Christ. That's what the gospel teaches, not through bearing children. Um, I also don't think it means Eve will be saved by giving birth to Christ. Now, that is a, an interpretation you'll see some throughout history. And theologically, it's true, right? That uh, Eve gave birth. It says the, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So the seed of the woman, the child of the woman will bring salvation. So theologically, we know that's true. And so many have said, I don't know what this verse means. That sounds good. Um, you know, at least it's safe, and I'm not teaching something heretical. I just simply don't think we can land there because of how the verse reads. Look at verse 15. She, which seems like it could be talking about Eve because of the previous verse, she will be saved through childbearing. So you're like, okay, I see where they're coming from with the Eve interpretation, but then read on. She will be saved through childbearing if... They, plural, talking about other women who give birth, if they continue in faith, love, holiness, with self-control. So it can't be talking about Eve because it uses the plural in the Greek to broaden this to all Christian women. So here's what I think this is saying. That childbirth is a part of the process of sanctification for most women. Notice it says she will be saved, future tense. It doesn't say she is saved, present tense. When the baby comes out, there's her salvation. It's not present tense. She will be saved, future day of judgment. Same language as 1 Corinthians 3.15, which says this, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So here's the parallel of these two verses. He will, will be saved, future tense, through fire. She will be saved through childbearing. Same language. Same exact language. Women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. In other words, the normal path of sanctification unto glory for Christian women will include bearing children or motherhood as she continues in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. That's what I think it's saying. Let me expound on this just a little bit and hopefully clear it up. Um, This is, by the way, uh, just so you don't think your pastor just came up with some weird interpretation here of this, this is the dominant evangelical modern interpretation of this. Read almost every commentary out there. Look at your study Bible. I mean, this is what you're going to find. Um, Listen to Denny Burke, president of Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. He said this. Paul uses childbearing as a figure of speech for a part of of a larger whole, which is the woman's wider role to care for the home. 
the same role Paul describes in Titus 2, 4 through 5. Quote, Young women are to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Burke says in 1 Timothy 2 and in Titus 2, Paul declares that wives have a God-ordained role to play in the caring for children and the home. And then he gives his qualifications here, his clarifications. It's not saying a woman must have children in order to be saved. It's not saying a woman must be married to be saved. But for those who are married, God assigns a special responsibility to care for the home. And in fulfilling that role, she will be, it will be one of the evidences of her persevering in the faith. And he goes on. Salvation is future in this verse. She will be saved. Is not talking about her entry into salvation that's in view, but the future consummation of salvation. Women who embrace their God-ordained role while continuing in the Christian virtues of faith, love, and holiness with self-control will find themselves saved on the last day. End quote. Guys, everybody loves complementarianism. Um, you know, we're equal, but we're different. Uh, we lo- it's, it almost sounds poetic when you say it. We're equal, but we're different. And it's like, no, who's going to object to this? It just sounds so great. Until you actually study the passages which begin to build it out. <laughs> which begin to show those differences. And then you're like, wow, you know, we are different. And there are differences. Although there is absolute equality. So men and women must in order to pass through the judgment, make it into future salvation, there must be perseverance in the faith, which includes faith, love, self-control, holiness, these things he's mentioning. That's true for men and women. But listen, the context, the sphere, the domain of life for the woman and for the man often looks different. There are legitimate differences in our paths to glory and obedience. And ladies, sisters, let me, let me just say, this is a distinct glory that you alone can bear. For most women, a primary contribution you will give to the church, you will give to your own family, you will give to society, will be the children you bear and birth and raise. That, that is no small thing. I mean, humanity doesn't exist without that. None of us here exist without that. That is no small thing. And let me, let me say to you, to, to the ladies here who may be grieving this reality because you so pray for your womb to be opened and you want to bear children. The Bible is full of women who God opened their womb. Don't despair. Be patient. Wait for His timing. But ladies, look, you've got to discern the lies of feminism when you're told life and joy are in a career and being kid-free. You've got to think about that. Is, th- is that true? When the feminists say kids are restrictive, you can't travel as easy, you can't enjoy all the pleasures of life with kids, you know what? It's true. But is it Are they selling you the good life? 
Are they selling you the good life when they tell you these things about kids? I mean, those of us with kids know part of the glory of children is how inconvenient they are. Part of the glory of children is how they limit travel, they limit eating out, they limit shopping, they limit career options, they limit free time. That's part of the blessing. Because life isn't in all those things. Life is in faith and love and self-control and holiness. And you know what? Kids have this strange way of bringing about those fruits and virtues on your path to glory. And how many, I mean, I've heard this so many times in this church, the two biggest sanctifying factors, we would like to think it's just reading our Bible in the morning for 15 minutes that makes us like Christ. And although you should read your Bible in the morning, it's mainly marriage and parenting, (laughs) you know, or at least largely marriage and parenting that have a way of just pulling layers of selfishness out of our lives. And if you aren't married and don't have kids, you can still become like Christ. God will bring suffering and trials in other ways. But those of us who are married and have children know how good this can be because it's restrictive. Because there's many things you can't do. And that's part of the blessing. True freedom always comes through self-denial, self-control, other-oriented love. And, And look, I know that there are mothers out there who are selfish and ungodly. Some of you may be thinking, well, I know a lot of mothers who are very selfish. Well, you know what? They're not mothering right. Because <laughs> anyone who tries to mother right knows it rids you of selfishness. It has a way of doing this to us. And God greatly uses it. I mean, we would love for the, to persevere unto glory. Women, I, w- I would imagine, would love to just go shopping every day, and just enjoy all the amenities of life, and then sit down with a a, a nice latte every morning and have your devotion and think, this is an amazing ride to glory. The reality is, the path to glory for biblical womanhood is a lot more messy than this. It often involves crying kids. It often involves many trials and difficulties in the realm of the home. This is something we cannot lose. Let me say this in closing. Um, Guys, I'm I'm aware that this is a a very unique passage of Scripture, maybe difficult. I just want to again remind us of Christ's words in Mark 8, 38. It says, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words and this adulterous and sinful generation Of Him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of the Father with His holy angels. You know, few of us are tempted to be ashamed for the doctrines of Christ, especially His death and His resurrection. You're not going to get very persecuted for talking about how you believe, especially in the South, how Jesus died and resurrected. But you bring up what the Bible says about gender. I mean, there's, there's many Christians that will not have jobs in the coming days if things continue as they do. Not because you believe in the, the incarnation of Christ, but because you believe in the scriptural teaching on gender. I mean, these will be the primary reasons that the culture hates us. And we need these texts. We can't avoid these texts because our enemy is still lying to women like he lied to the woman in the garden. 
He's still lying. And we still must not be ashamed of God's word. Guys, who, 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 whose church? Who, who's the head of the church? Christ is the head of the church. He has authority to tell us what he wants to tell us about his church, even as it relates to gender. Amen? Um, we've, we've taken two weeks on gender. Uh, we're done now. Uh, and, and, and we're going to come to the table. And you know, it's interesting. I was thinking how the table is actually something that's not gendered. You know, the Lord's Supper, it's actually something that you, you come to the table and there is no male or female. There, there's, there's no uh, mature believer, unmature believer, you know, adults and kids, women or, or men, educated or uneducated. All these distinctions get erased and we come as one. We come as one in Christ. Let's do that. Christ is our salvation. Come rejoicing in Him. Uh, if you have received Christ by faith and you've been baptized in His name, please join us rejoicing, proclaiming Christ at the table with us. If you'll be refraining and you have not been baptized or believed in Christ, uh, you can look in page two of your bulletin. There's some very meaningful prayers I encourage you to read in this time. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Son who You sent to this earth. Lord, a world of, uh, of those who question Your Word, from the beginning the serpent started lying about Your Word. From the first word out of his mouth, he was causing us to question Your Word. And so, Father, would You guard us from lies? And would You lead us in truth? Not only regarding gender, but in all things, Lord. Help us to be people who love Your truth. Not our own truth, not our culture's truth, but Your truth. And so thank You for preserving it in Your Word. Thank You for Your Holy Spirit that enables us to receive it and embrace it. And Father, we pray that You would help us going forward and coming to this table to rejoice greatly and all that you've done for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen.